calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Realm Presents Dark Heights Season 2, Episode 8. Tess. It was the morning of my one-month anniversary of being held prisoner at Arson. If I'd asked the kitchen staff to make me a cake, they would have. Like the first week after nightfall, I no longer saw anyone. The last time I'd gone down into the basement, it was empty. Lina had disappeared, and Tenebrae. I didn't know what that meant. Will was absent. Marius was nowhere to be found. I was alone again. And I could not stop thinking about what Marius had said to me. Your suicide would be an acceptable outcome. I would do it. To escape this, he'd been right. How many more months of being a prisoner would it take for me to do it? How many more days? One thing, obstinately, I clung to. I'd been smoking with Hank by the front gate a few days ago. That young man came here again, Hank had said out of nowhere. Who, Jason? That's right. What did he want? He asked if he could see you, and you turned him away. Hank shrugged. He said he'd come back. Said he'd keep trying until it was a yes. That idiot, I heard myself say. Maybe it was foolish for me to think it, but knowing that Jason was there, out there in the world that I was no longer a part of, thinking about me, wanting to see me again, it was a lifeline that I was holding on to more desperately with each passing day. It was proof that I still existed, 
but I no longer knew who I was. I was losing everything. On this one-month morning, I was taken in a jeep from the mansion to a location far removed across the estate. It took nearly an hour of driving down a road that was barely a road at all, through ditches of water, around fallen trees, and a fairly terrifying climb up a rocky slope. Everyone called this place the Institute. Marius had said it was a hospital for expectant mothers. I was told that he had arranged for me to begin volunteering there. The building was completely hidden. I didn't see it until we were right up to it, and the jeep had stopped, and I was told to get out. Half buried in the forest, it was a low, long building with pitted gray concrete walls. The sight of it filled me with a dread that bordered on panic. There were slabs of concrete stairs leading down and around the side of it, to the back, where it was apparent that the place had been built into a wooded hillside. A valley lay beyond the Institute. I saw more buildings below. There was a landing pad, a helicopter. Immediately, I imagined my escape. I'd make myself invaluable here at the Institute. I'd get key cards. I'd get security clearance. Someone, somewhere, would have a gun. I'd blow everyone away and pilot the helicopter right the fuck out of here. Landing the helicopter on top of the tallest building in LA, screaming, The Watchers! They're not human! Maybe not. A woman was waiting for me at the entrance to the Institute, which was several levels down these stairs that traversed the outside of the building. She smiled tightly as I approached. Dressed in blue hospital scrubs, sensible shoes, her dark hair tied back in a ponytail. There was something familiar about her, but I couldn't quite place it. She said, My name is Mora, and you must be Tess. We went inside. Mora led me past empty rooms. Her pace was brisk. The hallways and chambers inside were made of the same porous-looking poured concrete as the outer walls, it was freezing everywhere. I'd expected a busier environment. Gurneys, an ER, a delivery ward, waiting rooms, people. The deeper we went into it, the more I realized this place couldn't be what Marius claimed it was, and I was beginning to feel afraid. Let's check on our patient, Mora suddenly said. There's only one patient? Mora tisked. More of me. Each patient has one of me. Say what now? She smiled coldly. Again, I felt like I'd seen her somewhere before. You'll see. All part of your orientation tour. We turned down a hallway that was eerily similar to all the others, then came to a sliding door which Mora pulled back, revealing someone sleeping in a narrow bed in the chamber beyond. It was a woman in a medical gown, covered by a sheet and a beige blanket. She was fully, obviously, very pregnant. End of the last trimester kind of pregnant. Now I saw that there were wires connected to her abdomen, electrodes taped to her temples. There was a row of monitors across the room, displaying her vitals. Mora said, doing well. Now let's see what's going on with the conceptor. She took off down the hall. I hurried to keep up. We went down more stairs into a lower level. At the foot of the stairs, there was a bank of elevators. Mora guided me into one of them. 
it took us down, very quickly, to an even deeper level within the complex. At the bottom, there was an antechamber leading to something that looked like it was from a spaceship, an airlock. Mora gestured toward a locker room located off to one side. Change in there. It was empty of people, though there were enough lockers for many. Mora's instructions were succinct. Scrubs are in that cabinet. Put your hair up. Herself, she discarded the scrubs she was wearing in favor of new ones, and she shook her hair out, then redid it into an even tighter ponytail. Let's go. Into the airlock. A complicated series of wheels and mechanisms went into motion. The air pressure changed, enough to make my ears pop. We exited onto a catwalk that circled a huge chamber, the floor of which was a stone's throw below us. It felt like a nuclear missile silo. Maybe that was what it had been once. The walls were concrete, and the ceiling loomed far above us, arched in a dome. There was some kind of immense machine contained in this place, shaped like an inverted pyramid. Above us, the black lacquered surface of it was almost close enough to touch. It filled the expanse of the chamber. But looking down, I saw that it tapered sleekly, smaller and smaller. The snake-like lengths of hoses were everywhere. Cables radiated out from it, at tension, sunk into the walls to support the weight of the machine. Beneath the machine, there was a surgical bed, surrounded by instrumentation and monitors. I couldn't be sure, but it seemed to me that at the bottom of the machine, pointing down toward the bed, there were several feet of what looked like a very long, thin needle. Next to me, Mora said, we're getting the conceptor ready. For what? There was a strangeness in Mora's voice when she spoke. I'm sure you already know in some part of you what we do here. A natural resistance is common. Suddenly, I understood who she was, what she was. You're a watcher. We are. We are Kismet's and Tenebrae's sister. I don't understand. Look down. I did. There was a woman on the floor of the chamber, working at the surgical bed. She was adjusting the length of straps that I now saw were built into the bed to keep its future occupant tied down. The woman looked up at us and waved. Mora waved back. They were the same. Not exactly, not carbon copies. The Mora that stood next to me was obviously older, of an age with Kismet and Tenebrae, while the one on the floor of the chamber, now adjusting the instrumentation near the bed, was much younger. My age, even. The Mora next to me said, Your orientation is complete. The one below me called up to us. Meet you up there. Numbly, I went with my Mora back into the airlock, and once through it, back to the locker room, where I struggled, fumbling, to change back into my own clothes. The younger Mora came into the locker room. The two of them, older and younger, embraced each other in a long, loving hug. You look beautiful, the older said to the younger. Thank you. Why don't I walk Tess out? She'll be more comfortable with me. That's a very good idea. The older Mora turned to me. Goodbye, Tess. We will see you soon, when you start your work here with us. 
Promptly, she left. The younger Mora waited for me patiently. Then, when I'd finished changing, she went with me to the elevator. She said, brightly, I'm looking forward to having someone here other than myself. How many of you are there? A few. I struggled for words. Kismet and Tenebrae? My sisters? No, they're not a multitude. Only I can do what I do. I'm not just here at the Institute. There are many of me, all over the world, pushing our interests in different ways. The elevator came to the top. We began traversing the maze of hallways. We'll start you slowly. Some light cleaning duties, some prep time with the patients. Whenever we've had volunteers here with us, it helps the mothers. It's a boost to morale to see a smiling face like yours every day. I don't... You don't want to, I know. It's just that I don't think you have a choice. Marius is firm about it. He wants you here. And now that I've met you, I want you here. To the left. I was beginning to feel weak, dizzy from the quick walking, all the turns. Coming up and out of the Institute toward the exit seemed so much longer than it had going in. Mora went on, speaking quickly, as if she had too much to say to me in the short time we had together. I'm not sure if the first me explained everything to you. I've noticed that I seem to lose interest in verbal communication as I get older. I'm having trouble. This is where we made Lina and Will. This is where we will make another son or daughter. But there are so few women who are able to receive the essence of what we are. The frail mortal body cannot bear it for long. And those that can, the mothers, none have survived to deliver. None of the babies have survived. Not since Lina and Will. Their own mother died that day. Some of me were there. They were very sad. I stumbled. The younger Mora, walking next to me, took hold of me with an inhuman strength, pulling me alongside of her, not even breaking stride. My toes of my shoes juddered, dragged along the flooring until I found my footing again. We were at the front door. Mora opened it. There were three men in dark suits waiting for us. We arranged a triad to take you back to the house, for safety. Can you walk without their help? I nodded. Good girl. I think Marius is right. Once you're ready, Tess, we will test you for candidacy here. After all, my knees started to buckle. I felt sick. I sank to my knees. Mora said, I think you'd be a wonderful mother. I threw up everything in my stomach. Could not stop from seeing myself strapped down onto the bed in that immense silo, the machine a black expanse above me, lowering, coming down onto me, three feet of large bore needle pressing into my skin. The men helped me back up the stairs outside the Institute. I don't know if they carried me between them. We drove back through the forest to the mansion. The man who sat next to me never took his eyes off me. At the front of Arson, the man seated next to me jumped out first. Then he reached for me. His hand closed around my arm. No! He pulled on my arm, hard. We have orders. Suddenly, I was thrashing against him. No! Fuck! Stop! The other two men were coming around. You're hurting me! It was nightfall. The look of anger on Will's face. He lifted his hand 
It came across. He slapped me hard, and my head snapped to one side. I was in the woods, the man in the bomber jacket. His knees pressed into my chest, one hand closing around my throat, squeezing everything out. I was in LA, in the front hallway of the producer's apartment. He got his fingers in my hair, and he pulled it hard, like he wanted to hurt me. That's enough! Let her go! The man let go of my arm. At first, I didn't know who had commanded them. She came toward us out of Arson's open double doors. You guys are so dead. That's not a hyperbole. You're all, like, going to be killed. It was Lina. The three men lingered there, uncertain. Maybe Lina didn't have authority over them. She shooed them away with a gesture. Go on, get out of here. What are you waiting for? Finally, they obeyed her, hurriedly piling into the jeep and accelerating down the drive to the parking lot at the front gate. I wasn't steady on my feet, yet Lina stood apart from me. Oh, Lina. She was a ragged, emaciated ghost of herself, dark pouches like bruises beneath her eyes, a gauntness in her face. Even her voice sounded raw, torn apart from screaming. I'd always thought she was beautiful, but what they'd done to her had sharpened everything into pain and hunger. She grinned, ghoulish. Not much left, right? They got everything. I didn't think about it. I went right to her, took her in my arms. I held her. She was so thin. Whatever was left inside of me that could break for her felt broken again. She didn't cry. There weren't any tears, but she made a strange, frail sound, a quiet whimpering that she wasn't able to hold back. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. After a time, she pulled herself out of my embrace. She saw the Euroboros on my arm. She touched it. I gasped as a lance of fire shot out from the bracelet and flickered down to my hand, which went immediately numb with pins and needles. What the fuck is that? I was clutching my numb hand with my right. Kismet gave it to me. You better take it off then. I can't. Well, that's not good. Quickly, she said, let's go for a walk. Will's waiting for us. She set out at a pace that I couldn't match, then slowed down when she saw I was struggling. Lina helped me down a path past the hedges where there were enclosed manicured gardens. The path took us into the trees. There seemed to be no end to places I hadn't known existed here on Arson's estate. We came upon a strange sight. There was a cottage out here in this part of the forest. The little house looked like something out of a fairy tale, like the witch's cottage in Hansel and Gretel, complete with a gabled roof, red door, ornate shuttered windows, a squat chimney from which white smoke rose up in puffy tufts. 
and Will was there, leaning against one stuccoed wall. Lina went to him. He reached for her and held her hand. Hansel and Gretel at the cottage. Lina said, It's called the Reverie House. No way we're going in there, but being close to it helps us do our blocking thing. Helps Will, I mean. Makes it easier. Makes it last longer. Will said, I have a plan. Hank told us that Zack's brother asked you to go for a coffee. I was shaking my head. So what? Will spoke in a jumbled rush. I can convince Dad to let us all go. Lina and I will go with you to Chaperone. It won't work. It will. He just said to me, just now, that you're doing well here. You started your work at the Institute. He's thinking about relaxing your restrictions. Lina's eyes were intense. Gabriel Michel will come for us. Will nodded. I met him. He can, like, teleport. Not into arson, but all we need is to get you and Lina out of here. I took in a breath. It's not going to work. It will. What happens when it doesn't work? What happens to me then? Will was adamant. We have to try it, Tess. We have to. It's all we've got to get you free. My dad will go for it. I know he will. I said, okay, okay. Then something occurred to me. The way Will was talking about this master plan. I said to him, what about you? You're coming with us too? Lina looked at her brother. She let go of his hand. You're not. How can I? In a tiny, plaintive voice, Lina said, You can't stay behind, Will. If we make it out of here, you won't ever see me again. No! Come with us! They'll look for me, Lina. You know it. So I have to come back here. They'll put their power into finding you, but only for a while. They'll give it up. There's a chance for you. But I can't be there. If I'm with you, they'll never stop. If it's just you... Lina closed her eyes. Because I'm not worth anything. Not anymore. But I never was. Was I? Will faltered. I can't keep going. Can't keep them out much longer. I turned to Lina. Let's go back. We'll talk later. Will called out to us as we left him at the fairy tale cottage. Looking back, I saw that he thought we were out of sight, and he doubled over, grimacing with effort and pain. It had cost him something to shield our meeting from the other watchers. On our walk back, Lina asked me to tell her everything that had happened to me while she was being held in the basement of Arson. I started talking about the Institute, but I found myself unable to say much. I was terrified of it. I never go there, Lina told me. Will doesn't either. Mora said your mother died. Yeah, we never had a mom. Nothing to remember, even. She looked at me with her sideways smile. And just for your information, the older Moras prefer to be called Lady Mora. I won't need to know that because we're getting out of here. Lina didn't respond right away. Then she spoke with a haunted look in her eyes. Will passed every trial. It's what we did when we were little. We were tested. At first, I did well. They were easy. Make a picture in your mind and draw it with crayons. Solve this weird wooden puzzle. Stuff like that. But when we were 12, 13 years old, they got harder. 
My dad, I mean, Marius, he would ask us, for example, to try to locate and view one of Mora's incarnations. Will did it immediately, but I couldn't. Or Kismet would show up and inflict pain on us and we'd have to stop her. Will always could. Kismet would make it so that everything hurt, my hands and arms, face, my skin, but I was too weak to overcome her. I don't know how Will did it. I admired him. I thought he was strong and clever and brave. It didn't bother me that he was allowed to go to school with other kids and that I had tutors at home. I thought it was what was right, that I was this useless thing, and Will was perfect. We were coming up to the mansion. I couldn't allow myself to imagine that I'd never see it again, that Will's plan, maybe plan was too strong a word for it, was good enough. Lina said, I want to take you somewhere. Up on the second floor, past my bedroom and the other closed doors, I didn't know whose rooms they were. There was an intersection of the main hall and a side corridor that came in at an angle. Lina went to a panel of wall between the two hallways. Pressing on the top of it, she unlatched a secret door that swung outwards. Beyond, there was a tightly twisting staircase that led up. Her secret lair in Arson's vast attic was hidden inside a jumble of disused furniture. Chairs and tables had been accumulating for what must have been decades, thrown and piled into teetering towers that rose from the floorboards to the low ceiling. There was a path through them. We had to get down on our hands and knees to navigate it. There was just a little light that came in through some window somewhere, enough to see our way through the angles of the interlocking legs and the heap of furniture. Then we came out of the tangle into a clearing surrounded on all sides by stacks of broken furniture. Lina went to light some candles. This is where I sleep. It's not much, I know. Her warren was a treasure trove of neglected childhood toys. There was a little kid's sun-yellow bookshelf, dwarfed by a stack of plastic-covered couches, on the shelves of which there were only board books for first readers. A row of dolls stared at me, perched on an ancient purple velour settee, most of them missing arms, legs, eyes. There was a standing wardrobe that stood on the other side of Lina's lair. Her expensive clothes overflowed and exploded out of it and were flung across the floor without regard. Let the seance begin, Lina said, looking at all the candles she was bringing to light one by one, striking matches. I picked up a snow globe from the bookshelf next to me. There was Arson, the mansion, surrounded by a field of white. I shook it. The snow whirled madly inside. Lina said, You must be so tired. What about you? I'm so fucking tired. She kicked at some of the clothes and revealed a mattress beneath the pile. There were pillows, too. My oh-so-awesome bed. She knelt on the mattress. I went over to her. She took both of my hands and pulled me down. There was a thick blanket or duvet in the mess of discarded clothes, and we pulled it over ourselves. The nearby candles guttered, and quickening shadows danced over us and across the gaunt lines of Lina's face. 
I held her. She nestled into the shape of me. The Euroboros moved, circling my arm. I didn't think that Lina noticed it, and I didn't tell her. Lina muttered, It was never like this before. They started hurting me when I failed the trials, but it was never like this. I thought I was going to die, and I thought that maybe it would be okay if I did. Have you ever felt that? Knowing that maybe it would be better to die? We lay together. She lifted her face to mine. We kissed. She pressed herself against me, pushing me down. I held my hands against the small of her back. She unbuttoned the top buttons of my blouse and pressed her lips against the skin above my heart. A sound came out of her. A wrenching, cutting sound, like everything tearing apart. For a moment, she was suspended above me, her hair hanging down. Then she lowered her head. She bit down hard, as hard as she could. She hurt me. Afterward, she became still. She lay across me. She had turned her head to one side with her cheek, her temple, resting on my chest, burning with heat. Her breath had slowed to sleep. I felt blood trickling down from her open mouth. You're listening to Dark Heights Season 2. Dark Heights is a Realm production. Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Dark Heights is created and written by C.D. Miller. Produced by Marco Palmieri, Fred Greenhalge, Kaylin West, and Haley Wagreich. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Marcy Wiseman, and Julian Yap. Starring Dion Graham, Julia Whalen, and Neil Helligers. Sound design, editing, mixing, and mastering by Kaylin West. Original music by Chris Miller. Music supervision by Marcus Bagala. Production manager, Alexis Latshaw. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Osadolahi. Find more shows like Dark Heights by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.